All right, we're finishing up Matthew chapter 18 this morning. We will um, finish up with the parable. Um, Oftentimes it's listed as the parable of the unjust or unforgiving servant. I think it's better actually to make sure we not forget that it's also there's the forgiving king who comes first. So it's the parable of the forgiving king and the unforgiving servant. And that's important for us to, as we look at this this morning, to keep in mind. It's also incredibly important for us before we get into this last portion of Matthew 18 to remember the distance we've covered and to remember what the entire point of this discourse is. Remember, this is all one speech, right? It's one of the four or five speeches that are unique to the gospel of Matthew. And this one in particular is all about life together. The, the community of the church, as we've titled the sermon series, for the life of the church, which is also for the life of the world. As the church goes, actually, so goes the world. If there is no light in the darkness, if there is no means of redemption, if there is no hope, then what do we exactly have after all? Right? I mean, let's run through our options. Um, Is November going to fix this country? Is the fight over gun control going to fix this country? Is Britain leaving the EU? I know some of you are excited about that. Do not cheer. I don't want to know who you are. I'm not against it, by the way. Um, But is that going to solve everything, or is that just more of the same? And we've been doing this for a long time, haven't we? We, we, This is nothing new. Um, it's, it's kind of funny, I saw a meme where it's like George Washington was saying, oh, uh, Britain wants to leave the control of a foreign power. Interesting. I wonder where they got that from. Uh, anyway, so uh, there's all kind of things kind of going on in our world, and we can feel, if you're paying any attention, we can feel it groaning under the weight of death. And so what are we offering this world in terms of a witness? And it's like it's been said many times before, you bear witness whether you think you are or not. Like a lot of people say, man, I just haven't had a chance to really bear witness. No, how you drive, how you shop, how you text, how you call, how you treat people at restaurants, how how you do everything you do, how you parent, you are bearing witness in all of your life, whether you intend to or not, right? And so, yes, it's good to be intentional at times and make sure that you're really paying attention, but it's far more important to be a disciple at all times and recognize that nothing gets wasted. And so... Remember how this chapter starts with this question that is haunting. It haunts us and our culture still, right? Remember, the question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? How many of us wrestle over and over and over again with wanting to at least appear to not be the worst, right? Maybe, maybe you're not even thinking, I don't want to be the greatest parent, but I dang sure just don't want to be the worst. Just don't let me be the tail end of this thing. But that means you've got to be better than somebody, That means somebody has to be worse than you so you can celebrate. And so Jesus totally turns this entire question on its head, if you remember, and he welcomes a child into his midst and he says, you may not even be in the kingdom. What are you doing talking about greatest? Unless you were like this child, you're not in. And remember that that being like a child was not... uh, um, in terms of characteristics of a child, innocence and awe and temper tantrums and selfishness and lying and theft and all the things that children do, it's actually talking more about a posture, a a recognition of what it means to be a child, which means to be under the authority of the one who created you. Right? And it also means to, for you to recognize that it's, you're not the point. You are the creature. The creator and his glory is the point. 
So in order for us to be a part of the kingdom, that's where we must begin. That must permeate. And remember, he goes on to talk about how it would be better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and you to be chucked into the ocean than for you to lead one astray who is trying to come to him or grow in him as a disciple. And some of you may say, well, that's exactly why I don't do discipleship, man. I don't want no millstone action. As if you can step back out of the Great Commission and say, just because I didn't do anything, therefore I'm safe. Might I remind you of another parable? Which one am I going to quote, Patrick? Absolutely. You're a good man. You may make it. I don't know who that blonde lady was, but some, your wife is gone. I don't know where she went. Uh, but the parable of the talents, right? So when the guy hides his, which is the one with the least amount of, and a talent's money. He's not hiding his ability to sing or do magic tricks. He's hiding a, a, an investment. And when he hides it, he says, look, I know you're, 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 you're a brutal dude, man. I know you would want exactly what you gave me back, so I hid it. I didn't do anything with it. And how does the master respond? He said, I didn't give it to you to hide. I gave it to you to use and display in this world so that more would come in. And he deals with him harshly, harsher than he even expected. So we do not, I want you to hear me well, we do not get off the hook when we say, well, if I don't engage in it, then I can't mess it up, and therefore I'm fine. It looks, at least it looks better on my spiritual resume than if I'd have gotten the mix and messed it all up, right? Let me tell you something about discipleship. You're going to mess it up. You're, you're going to mess it up in ways that only Jesus can fix. You're going to mess it up in ways that only the Holy Spirit can undo. You're going to mess it up as a parent. You've already done it, by the way. None of you has a great score all the way down. You've already messed this up. And take heart, Christian. You're loved even still. That's why we need Jesus every hour. It's why we need Him at all times. That's why we need to be reminded of who and whose we really are. Right? And so it's not incumbent upon us to get it right. It is incumbent upon us to enter into the fray. Remember, as we've said, the church is one job. One. What is it? Sing the right songs every Sunday, right? In a certain style too, by the way. No. No, what is the one job of the church, which everything comes back into? What is it? Got to be one Christian here at least. Law of Adjustment. Glorify God through discipleship. So even the glorifying of God, that only occurs when you display his glory to someone else and they are drawn to it. So discipleship is the one job of the church. Everything flows into that. Now, again, I know some of you hear that and you immediately think, oh man, that means I need to start buying some materials. I need to start training. I gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta teach other people. Discipleship is not all teaching, right? Discipleship is praying for someone. Discipleship is being there enough that when something happens, you have the right to speak into it. Discipleship is sometimes bearing the unbearable Tennessee volunteers game after game after game just so you can be there to love people who just don't know no better. And so, so sometimes we, we get the wrong idea. Discipleship is all of life. Do you understand? It is the presence in all things. It's the willingness to call and check on somebody. That's discipleship, because we do that so little. We really do. We have, oftentimes, people will leave this church. They'll be gone for months, and somebody will come up to me and say, hey, what, what happened to the, the Shingdendens? That's not a real person, by the way. Well, what happened to them? 
Why am, I, why am I the only one that would know? Oh, because you get paid to love people, right? I get paid to keep up with y'all, which is not all the way untrue, by the way. It is my job as part of this to shepherd well, and I would hope that I would know, but I would hope you'd have known they were gone before they were gone for three months. And I'd have hoped you'd have been keeping up with them to know what was going on with them so you could help walk them through whatever they were struggling with. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, be hospitable, welcome in the children. Be enough in their lives to know what's going on. And remember, he talks about removal of external and internal things radically so that discipleship can flourish. He even talks about that radical surgery stuff. And then he goes on to give us not a judicial process, right? But a reconciliation familial process and he says, when something, somebody sins, and I didn't really get into this, but I had a couple of you pick up on it, which means there's at least two sharp people in here. They recognize that I kind of left the against you part out, which most of them, don't freak out and don't, don't rip this page out of your Bible, but most of the best manuscripts do not contain the words against you. And even the ones that do, it stills the same thing. Do you understand that when someone, let me just give you an example, if someone gets involved in an affair in our church, what's that probably going to do to their relationship with you? They're going to want to hang out with you, fair Christian, and let you in on what they're doing? No, you will notice it begins to affect your relationship with them, even though their sin is against their spouse and against the potential spouse of the other individual. But it also has a supreme impact. And you think they're going to show up for church week after week? No, they're going to begin to drift from the body. So that sin is against us all. When there, any sin enters in and that person becomes separated from God, that hurts every single one of us because we all have a part to play in the body. Whether you're using that, those gifts or not, you have them. And so we're all affected. So don't let that, oh, well, they didn't really sin specifically against me, so I can't really say anything. No, you're not off the hook. If you find out about it, you know about it, and you love them, and you're like a child, and you have humility, you'll go to them as Christ came to you. And it says you go to them specifically. I want to speak to this just real quick, because we got a little bit of this going on right now. Uh, and it needs to stop. So, so, so sometimes when, when something's kind of going on with people, they like to go talk to other people about it. And sometimes they'll say, well, I'm seeking wise counsel. No, you're not. You're gossiping. And what you're doing is trying to find if other people agree with you so that you can have heavier weight when you come to me. And I'm not for that. And that should not happen. And you shouldn't do it to anyone else in this church either. Now notice, I'm not yelling right now. But if it continues, I will. And so, we need to be a people that when you know something's kind of going on or you have a suspicion, notice what the Scripture says. It gives you no out whatsoever. You go direct. And go direct not because you're afraid of how that person's going to respond, because they act like a jerk. Then that confirms your suspicion. And now you can go to step two. And now you can talk to somebody else and take them with you. Don't get this out of order, because what it does is it causes the little foxes to begin to spoil the vineyard which has an impact on the glory of God, not the glory of Cameron. And that we should be utterly against. You understand? So, there's a process. It's reconciliatory. It is, it is for the purpose of family. And so now, Jesus is going to give us this parable. 
And this is all about what it means to be a child. In fact, the most childlike thing you can do, the most un, um, king-like thing you can do thinking you're the greatest is to forgive someone. How hard, think about this. How hard is it to forgive someone when they've done something to you, even the smallest of things? Sometimes I like to, if I see you guys out on the road, I like to cut you off and see what you do. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But, but think about it. Even small offenses. Why are we sitting on red so much? Why does the smallest of things set us off? What does that tell you is going on deep down in the soul? Out of the wellsprings of the heart comes what? what you really are. And so if we are always sitting on red, something is deeply, deeply wrong. And the Lord is being gracious to show that to you. Why? Because He loves to forgive. And that's what we're going to see is that this king loves to forgive. So, let me ask you a question. What best evidence is that we truly love one another as Christ has loved us? What's the one thing that we could do that could say to the world, man, we love each other? Give birthday gifts? Always remember anniversaries? No. What tells the world how much we love each other? When we wrong each other, and we can work through that, and we can still be brothers and sisters, not people who now are, 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 are okay with one another at a great distance, but can still be in proximity, in community, working together, praying for one another and loving one another. That's what the world needs to see. Because I don't know if you're paying attention to the way the rhetoric is going, but this is utterly radical compared to what's being said in the world. For those who are on one side of an issue, whatever the other person on the other side of the issue is thinking, they are complete idiots, unworthy of life itself. And the other side of the issue says of the other side of the issue, they are complete idiots, utterly unworthy of life itself. That's where we're getting to. We're drifting that far apart. And so the church, I want you to recognize, the church has this incredible moment to shine as she has never shined before in history. Instead of adding to the silly rhetoric that is thoughtless and mindless and anti-gospel on both sides, since we've gone into some sort of false binary, it seems, there is a supreme opportunity for us to show grace and mercy and love. And the best way to do that is forgiveness. So, as we step into this, keep that in mind. And, I, and let me say this too. I know for some of you this is about to be a very difficult sermon. Because there's some hard stuff that Jesus is going to say to us that I don't want to hear either. And there's some stuff I've had to deal with over the years in light of this. Here's what I want you to hear. Everybody got me? Everybody dialed in for a second? I want you to know that it's a process. You are not expected to go home today and fix whatever forgiveness issue you have by 6 o'clock tonight. For some of you, that's not even going to be close to possible. It is a process that you are going to have to enter into, and you need some help, and we want to walk with you in this. We, if you need any of us as elders or deacons, myself included, we do not want you trying to carry this kind of burden alone if you're struggling with this. Now, if you're going to set your jaw like Flint and say that I'm an idiot and Jesus is an idiot, which is just good company for me, by the way, that's fine. You can do that, but only you will hurt from the poison that you give to yourself, no one else. And so I just want you to hear, I know this is going to land on some of you because I've got my own baggage on this issue. 
So I want you to know straight away, there's no, you, you don't have to hurry up and fix this, but what you do have to do is say you're willing to go forward as the Spirit leads and guides. Understand? All right, so let's step into the text, Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Listen to what God's Word says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, what's going on here? So Peter, is, he's heard Matthew 8, he's heard this discourse, and he's wondering, how many times can we go over the same thing again and again and again? Surely there must be an upper limit. And what you may not be aware of is the upper limit, according to rabbinic tradition, which is based on the Proverbs, was three. Actually, the fourth time you sinned against someone, they had every right to cut you off, right? So Peter is even being generous in suggesting seven, because he gets that Jesus is far more gracious and merciful than the rabbis and the Pharisees. So Jesus thinks, I mean, Peter thinks, I think I got this right, which is why he offers a number. And so he says, but surely there must be an upper limit. Surely at some point, we don't have to again forgive for the same thing. And what does Jesus say? No, actually, it's incalculable. Because seven times 70 has everything to do not with, okay, so four, I, I do the math, 490. You get 490 with me. Some of you are on like 486, 487. No, that's not true. It's not, so Jesus is not giving an actual number. What's he doing here? He's saying you are to forgive infinitesimally. To the end of time, you are to forgive. And notice, again, I don't want you to miss this part, that Peter had asked, how many times can my brother sin against me? And I have to forgive him. That means over and over. And I know for some of you, you've already, you're ready to check out of this sermon. You're just thinking, if I could just get some of that peach pound cake, this will all be okay. And that may be true, actually. Uh, not entirely. Um, so, so this is tough, isn't it? I don't like this. I don't like this at all. And I'm the pastor of this church. I don't, I don't like that some of you According to what Jesus is saying to me as well as to you, you get to repeat offend. As long as you're willing to get back up again and dust off in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the forgiveness of Christ and try yet again. I feel like there should be a limit at some point, right? But I don't mean that for me, though. Because, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at at being variable in my sins. No, I make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And guess what I expect Jesus to do? Forgive me. And guess what he does? He does. Not in cheap grace fashion. So we're not talking about, let me, let's be clear here. Because there's also something within this. There's a genuineness of repentance that must be part of this, right? It's not, hey, it's like we've, I've said before, it's not, hey, congratulations, I'm sorry. Offended you again, blah, 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 Christian, Christ covered it. Let's calm down. Is that what this is? This isn't cheap repentance, nor is it cheap grace. This is, this is a, a genuine evidence of someone coming to you and saying, brother, I'm sorry, I, I've done it again. I, 
I, I did it again, I'm, and I'm sorry. Now, who are we to judge the heart? That's the, where it gets tricky too, right? I mean, how, how can we know if they're genuinely repentant? Well, there should be some evidence of change in behavior, but that doesn't, notice all that doesn't get said here. I wish it did and make the process easier. It gets said some other places as well. But what matters is that our heart is oriented to the restoration of family at all times. If, if you don't hear anything else, hear that, that the, the heart of us should be at all times oriented to bringing the family back because that was God's heart for his people. And so here Peter has asked this question and Jesus throws the, the gates wide open. Listen to what Leon Morris says about this passage. Leon Morris is a New Testament scholar. He says, Jesus is not concerned with a petty forgiveness that calculates how many offenses can be disregarded before retaliation becomes acceptable. For him, forgiveness is wholehearted and constant. It is a way of saying that for Jesus' followers, forgiveness is to be unlimited. For them, forgiveness is a way of life, bearing in mind what they have been forgiven. They cannot withhold forgiveness from any who sin against them. So you, as a child of the creator God who has forgiven you, do not have the liberty to withhold something against someone else if he chooses to redeem them and send them to you in repentance to seek your forgiveness. You can't. And I know for some of you, this weighs heavier than others. Again, I've quoted this story here before, but I think it's powerful. So powerful that Rolling Stone couldn't help but put it on the cover of their magazine some years ago. There was a Methodist minister whose son was brutally murdered by a guy who was just a drifter, drifted through town, ran upon his son. I think he beat him to death and shot him with no remorse whatsoever. So at the sentencing hearing, he stood up and they asked, do you have anything to say to the family? And the guy said, sorry. And there was something in that that the father heard. And so he started to visit this man in prison. And the man became a believer. And he got out some seven or eight years later. And they began to do this tour where they talked about forgiveness, where one of them would stand up and tell their side of the story. And then the other would stand up and say, now I am... I am the one who killed his son. Or I am the father of the son he killed. And Rolling Stone was so stunned by it, they couldn't even say anything bad about Christianity in the article. They couldn't figure out how to make it at least look like it was of the world or something. They were just, they were so stunned they had to run it on the cover. Do you understand? I mean, do you have an appreciation? Rolling Stone has never been a friend of Christianity of any kind. And they were just blown away. Now, now, you may say, well, that's supernatural. Well, isn't all forgiveness supernatural? All of it? Even the littlest of things, that, even the peccadillos, as we've said here, isn't that, even that supernatural to let things go? And so, here's my question right out of the gate. Do you struggle with, as we've talked about this even so far, are you struggling with trying to think through scenarios that would, get, but what about... Because what that does is that tells you the orientation of your heart. That tells you that the orientation of your heart is to try to figure out how not to forgive instead of the orientation of our heart ought to be, how am I about, how is this going to happen? Not but what about, but how is God going to move in this in a, 
that's a question of faith. It may be of little faith. It may be the how in the world is God going to do this, but, or the expectant faith, which is how is God going to do this so we can celebrate. But see, that tells straight away, because I, I know I do it sometimes when I read this. I was like, yeah, and even as a pastor, I was thinking about it. I, I tried to get away with it by thinking about it on your behalf, right? Well, but what about this scenario and how are we going to work through that? And what about this scenario and how are we going to work through that? But what that revealed is that even I am struggling to honor what Christ is all about, which is forgiveness, this thing, this light that shines the brightest in the darkness of this world that is, if you haven't paid any attention, she is utterly unforgiving. And so, do you struggle with that? But same question, are there sins that you struggle with repetitively? Because I think most of you do. And if you have a repetitive struggle, and you expect Jesus to be okay with you and either your prayerlessness or your struggle with things upon the internet and other places, uh, or your struggle with lying, or your struggle with gossip, which by the way is a sin, or your struggle with not honoring your parents, which is a sin, or your struggle with not honoring the Lord. This is one of the few Sundays you're going to come this year or your struggle with whatever it may be that's just repetitive. What do you expect? And don't cheapen grace by expecting something you will not give as lavishly as it has been given to you. And this is what Jesus is going to show us in this parable. So turn back to the text. Let's read verses 23 through 27. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master said to the servant that he was released and he forgave him the debt that he owed. Now, there's some things you need to know about this because maybe this doesn't land on you like it ought to because maybe you just don't know how much 10,000 talents is. So the king, remember, and let me say this, with a parable, you got to be careful to not try to make everything work theologically. Like, not to try to make every little aspect of this into some sort of make it work in every theological option and position. There's a reason why Jesus is speaking about this and it has everything to do with forgiveness, not whether or not you can lose your salvation. Let me just say that straight away. So that's the one stumbling block that people kind of hit with this parable, especially when we get to the second half. But what you need to know, the important part, is how much 10,000 talents is. Can somebody give me a guess on how many years worth of work it would take to, to, to earn 10,000 talents in that culture? Wild guess. Even the children can play. How many? 20? A million? It's exactly 200,000 years. 30 to 60 million days. The cost in, in dollars is, and I don't even know if this is a real number, bajillions. Right? Like it's incalculable. In fact, the truth is, at that time, there would not have been enough money in currency 
If you took everybody in the known world at that time and made them put all their money in a pile, it would not equal 10,000 talents. And I know what you're thinking straight away is, what in the world was this cat doing that he racked up that kind of debt? Well, they didn't tell us, and that's not the point of the story, is it? The point of the story is his debt was incalculable. And what you also need to know is 10,000, as it turns out, was the highest Greek number at the time. And talent was the highest measure of currency at the time. So what Jesus is essentially saying is, he's got a debt that they don't, we don't even have a language for. And so when he says, you can't pay it, so I'm going to sell you, your wife, and your children, and all that you have. Do you know how much he would have gotten for all that? Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three ta uh, uh, talents at the most. So is that... Is that really satisfying to the king to sell this man and his family into slavery? Is that going to pay the debt as it turns out? So notice what the guy does. He begins to beg the king, hey, show mercy. I'll pay back all that I owe. How's he going to do that? If there's not enough money in currency, if there's not even enough in circulation, how's this man ever going to do what he's promising? Let me ask you, is it starting to sound like you at all? Jesus. If you just give me this one job or this one, this one spouse or this one thing, I will pay you all that I owe. You may not say it like that, but you do make those kinds of ridiculous claims, by the way. We all do. Jesus, if you would just pl play a Phil Collins song next on the radio. I don't know what kind of sick person does that. Actually, I, I want to confess I did that at age 10 when I was trying to figure out if God was real. And Phil Collins did play, and I think it was the devil that did it. So... Uh, but, but truth be told, we're, we do it all the time, don't we? Jesus, if you would just, God, if you would just do this for me, I will do that for you, as if God needs what we offer. He doesn't. And that's the beauty of it. He doesn't need it, but oftentimes he'll receive it much in the same way you do when there's some sort of drawing that you can't make out for the life of you, but you say to your child, it's beautiful. I don't know what it is. But I think it's beautiful because you made it. So here this man is writing checks. He can never, ever, ever in his lifetime cash. And notice what the king does. And this is subtle, and I don't want you to miss this. There's two things that he does. And this often gets missed in this parable. It says he releases him. Now why would it be important for this man to be released? Well, here's the deal. That means he will accrue no future debt. He no longer is a servant of the king, not in the way that we would think about being servants of the king as children of God, but he no longer is a slave. That means no debt in the future can be accrued. And he takes his present and past debt and he exonerates it as well. So this man is set free indeed. Past, present, and future. What a beautiful thing this, this king has done. He had pity on him and his family when he realized this guy can't pay this. What a beautiful picture of a forgiving king. And how much has God done that for us? Right? How much do you recognize that he has done for each and every one of us? I don't care if you were great as a kid and great in high school. That, none of that matters. In fact, that may be some of the worst sin of all is the arrogance of your greatness. Remember the initial question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? 
You don't get in being great. Your greatness doesn't, doesn't draw you any closer. And now you be, some of you may be thinking, that's awesome because I don't do anything. I'm terrible. Well, but that's not the attitude to have either now, is it? But the point of this is, it is only what God has done for us. We are all so far from Him. All of our debts, as they turn out, are incalculable. And you can't do anything to pay even the smallest denarii back. Even if all you had was one small sin. You, you, you were guilty of false humility. Because that one time you're like, oh, I'm just not that great. That was your one sin? Guess what you can't do? You can't pay it back. Not even that. So we're all equidistant from the king. We're all equally cut off from the Lord our God. And we all need the same grace and payment. So, do you, do you understand the gravity and size of your debt to God? No, you don't. None of us do because God is so gracious not to ever let us feel the full weight of it. How good is our God that He never says, here, hold this. You've never tasted of the gravity of your debt. All you can do is guess at it. We tried to cover the spread as Reformed folks by just going, uh, total depravity. But that even doesn't get it, does it? That doesn't weigh on us. But more, more than the weight of your debt is this question. Do you celebrate the even greater height, breadth, width, and depth of your unmerited forgiveness in Christ? Do you? That which can't... Now, here's what's beautiful about this. Can this be calculated? Can the measure of grace that you've been given, can it be calculated? No. It, too, is incalculable. And how incredible is it that God replaces something to us that is so broad, so incomprehensible, that we're going to take an eternity just to enjoy it? Do you understand? We celebrate through a glass half darkly even now. We can't but begin to kind of get it. But when we see Him in full and we are revealed in glory and amen, at long last we will be able to begin to really celebrate. I'm looking forward to that day. Because I'm tired of these little goofy celebrations. They're good, but they're not great. And that's what I look forward to, and I hope you do too. Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says about this. I love the way he puts this. He says, the anthropo anthropological realities of the gospel, that means man's side of the gospel, deep debt and human inability to pay it, are met now by the theological realities of the gospel, which is God's side of the equation, a deep forgiveness of all indebtedness by a gracious king. Praise God that the anthropological is overrun in grace by the theological. Now let's turn back to the text and see what this guy does with his newfound freedom. This is painful, actually. Beginning in verse 28. It says, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
I want to pause right there for a second, just unpack a little bit of this. So 100 denarii would only be about three or four months' wages. So this guy goes in his freedom and grabs somebody up and chokes them. Like he goes right from being forgiven to letting his darkness be poured out upon someone else. And this man, he begs him, hey, let me pay what I owe you, which was possible, by the way. Four months' wages would have been easy for him to get. Easy by virtue of the other guy's debt. But this guy puts him in prison. So tell me, how much money do you earn being in prison in those days? Not today, but in those days. Not one denarii. So he was going to put him in a position where there was no way he could pay his debt. And in fact, he would continue to accrue debt, not only against this servant, but against the king. Debt that he could never pay. So he was putting this man in a position of eternal lostness. So it's critical that you hear what I'm about to say to you. When you are unwilling to forgive someone, you essentially are shoving them into the corner of eternal lostness. Now, does that mean God can't save them? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you think you have the ability to say they are not worthy of their debt being forgiven. They are not worthy of heaven itself. Are you okay saying that? You got that kind of power? Would you want to stand before the king and say, hey, I got a list of names I hope you didn't, you didn't do anything with because they ain't worth a darn. I've already det- I did some work for you. God, I know you got stuff going on in Thailand, India, and that flood in West Virginia. I went ahead and took care of some things for you. I know you're all about judgment, right? But, but not with me, right? I mean, we're, we're good, right? Is that how we do it? Do we, do we have that kind of power? No. And praise God that we don't, because what did this man just show us? That no sooner does he rise in his newfound freedom than he exacts upon someone else that which he himself could not bear and puts that person in a position where they can never be forgiven. Now let's see how the king responds. And even before the king, some other people respond. And then it says, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, or actually the word there is torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to how many? Every one of you. Every. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I wish Jesus had a better PR guy on this one. I wish he'd have gone in a little lighter. I know you think that's odd for me to say that, but I do. But he didn't. And notice, it was first the other servants who recognized there is a genuine incongruity here. This man who'd been forgiven is being unforgiving. Are you paying attention? Are you grieved when you hear of yet another instance within the people of God of unforgiveness being extended and us celebrating when someone falls? Should that be our posture? Should we be glad that Mark Driscoll finally got his due or that Tulian Javagen finally fell on the sword of cheap grace? Shouldn't that bother us? 
Shouldn't we want better for God's bride? Shouldn't we do better? Shouldn't when we hear that kind of stuff, shouldn't we too turn to the king and begin to pray? Shouldn't we be humbled in distress over these kinds of things? I don't want you to miss that part. It seems subtle, but that's important for us too. But notice how the king responds. He ain't happy. And he shows up and he says, you wicked servant. He didn't put him in jail. He didn't sell him into slavery. He turned him over to be tortured until his debt was paid. Remember, how much was his debt? Bajillions. So how long is this guy going to be tortured? Until there's nothing left. Until there's nothing left. Now, you may find that troubling because you say, well, did he lose his salvation? That's not what this parable is about. What this parable is saying to you, given the full context of Matthew 18, is that it is equally ludicrous for you to think that you could pay back a debt of 10,000 talents, which is incalculable, and think you can be unforgiving. It is ludicrous for you to think you're in the kingdom and think that you can be unforgiving. It is ludicrous to think that you are loved and forgiven when you are unloving and unforgiving. Ludicrous. That's how this goes. So if... You, and this is always why, some of you have wondered, why does Cameron have this whole statement about if you haven't forgiven, you shouldn't take at the table? Well, here it is. This, this, this whole part is why I say to you, if you are condemning someone to that painted in corner where they are to eternally suffer, if you were God, you can't eat at this table because you're not what you think you are. Now again, I want to clarify does this mean that there's not a process sometimes? Does this mean that there's not a gap between working through the process of forgiveness and reconciliation? Doesn't it take two to tango and all that stuff? Yes. Absolutely it does. But here's how this goes. Let me give you an example. And I'll use my own life. <clears throat> so I was sexually abused as a child by an older boy. Okay? And I know his name. I still remember his name and I remember his face. I'll never forget it. In my later years, I was not yet a Christian. I ran into him in a grocery store, and fortunately the Holy Spirit took over in a way that I didn't know was the Holy Spirit at the time, and I, I was unable to kill him like I intended to. Do you understand that? Like when I saw him, I began to move toward him with the intent. I know this is kind of freaky. No, I, I'm, I'm a Christian now. It's slightly different. And I was going to kill him for what he had done to me. So here's the deal. Have I forgiven him? Like, I'm a Christian now. Have I forgiven him? And here's how, how, how we'll know all the way down. If he were to come in those doors, which is possible, by the way, that he would come in those doors and walk up to me and say, hey, I am, and I'm not going to say his name, I am, and I'm so sorry for what I've, I've done to you, and the Lord has made me a Christian. Can, can I come to your church and sit where you see me every Sunday? Answer, in this is yes. Yes. Now, how are we going to get there? I don't know. The Spirit's got to work on that. I've lost, I don't have touch with him. Should I go and find him and see, check on him? I don't know unless the Spirit calls me to do that. So don't go getting goofy about stuff because I know that some of the hardest for those of you who have heard this passage is if you've been physically or sexually abused. I get it. And you need to probably have some conversations with people before you go doing something like uber-spiritual. And, and see if, in fact, or if you've been, there's other ways that many of you are harmed that you're struggling with. It's hard. I get it. 
But, but, and so this is why I say we need to do this. This is something we need to do together in community. But the, the real deal is, if the Lord brings them into his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which, by the way, Jesus referenced from the start, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, we must be willing to dine with them, especially at this table. So, we need to let the world see what being a member of a church is really like. And if we can take steps toward being forgiving and quick to reconcile even the shortest of accounts, and that we don't gossip and chatter in the back hallways and in darkness, if we are quick to be vulnerable and, rec- and we recognize that it, this is a safe place to be real, this is a safe place to say, I'm struggling, then we will have something of grand value. If all we're going to do is week in and week out look pretty, which most of you do a great job of. In fact, all of you, really. Even the Baxter boys. We are only going to be a shadow of what we ought to be. When we can't tell each other the truth, when we are so scared, if somebody finds out what I'm really wrestling with, I'm gone. We need to, we need to shut these doors and go play ultimate or learn how to skate in the skate park and be cool. Because this ain't cool. So we need to model forgiveness such that sin can truly be forgiven and dealt with in our midst so that the world for their good can see there is in fact hope, an alternate possibility. Amen? So what are the three things we learned from this? Well, first of all, let me ask you the question. Is there anyone you're struggling to forgive? That's a great question for you to wrestle with today. I know it's not the funnest question to wrestle with on the Sabbath. Maybe you give it till Monday or Tuesday. I'm fine with that. But you need to ask this question because there may be. And how can we help you in that? Don't be ashamed of that. I've struggled to forgive. There's things I'm still struggling to forgive. I just read, uh, there was a poem, poem by a guy named John Berryman. And, and apparently his father had killed himself as mine had done. And in the poem he says... Um, Would you please stop pulling the trigger of the shotgun because I'm tired of carrying your anger? I feel that. I've said that. When my father pulled the trigger, little did he know that the bullet would travel through the years as well. And there's times that I still feel it traveling. And I don't know what to do with it except put it before the throne of grace because I can't go back and tell him I forgive him. My mother who overdosed, I can't tell her I forgive her. but the Lord tells me I'm forgiven. So we learn these three things. We are to be unlimited in our forgiveness within the family of God. Two, God granted us unmerited forgiveness for our incalculable debt and has set us free in Christ, past, present, and future. Three, we evidence our faith and status as a child of God through our forgiveness of others. The greatest picture of the gospel you will give is in how we forgive one another and we don't speak ill of one another and we build each other up and we will have something so beautiful if we can do that. Listen to what R.T. France says. In fact, I'm just going to read the last part of it. He says, a community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. There's just no options. And for us to think we're better than anybody else, for us to set our face like Flint and say, who's the greatest in the kingdom we are? <laughs> it sounds like a bad chant um, at a Tony Robbins event where people get their feet burned. Have you heard about that? It was not awesome. But we ought to be 
a community that is quick to forgive and is a safe place for people to genuinely wrestle with what needs to be forgiven. Amen? And what a beautiful day to do this, to have just this picture that God again and again has forgiven us. And this is why we do it as often as we do it, because we need to be reminded, don't we? We forget. Even though I may say it, we need something tangible sometimes, something to remind us that even in the small elements, Jesus is found. And forgiveness is all-encompassing. If the elders would go ahead and come forward, um, I just want to say a couple things. If you're not, if you, if you don't profess Christ as Savior, that means you don't, you don't even begin to wrestle with the weight of your sin. Um, and you don't recognize the height and breadth, the, the, the incalculable forgiveness that you have, right? Um, you can't take of this table. It won't do you any good. There's nothing magic about it. Secondly, if you are unwilling to forgive someone else, that means you have said, I hope they burn in hell for what they've done. You can't take of this table. That means you don't get what you got. And you need to reconcile that before you go eat to your own destruction and cursing. But if you are struggling in that, if you're trying to figure out how to get from, from the struggle, the sin against to forgiven and reconciled, and there's a whole distance there, you need the nourishment of this bread and this cup. I'm not telling you you can't because you're in process, and I'm not telling you you can't eat because you're struggling. No, you're exactly who needs to eat. But you cannot be decided in fact, for those of you who've been wondering, when I would talk about judge not lest ye be judged, that's what it is. That's exactly what Christ is talking about. When you have judged, you will be judged by the same thing. We just saw an example of it in the parable of the forgiving king and the unforgiving servant. By the same measure that that servant put on someone else, he had returned upon him. We don't have the power. We are not the greatest. We are not God. And so the beautiful thing is that on the night that Jesus was to be arrested and taken and beaten. He said to his disciples in a very loving way, he just picked up something common that was on the table and, he, and it was bread and he said, listen, this, this is my body and it's broken for you. And what that signified that they didn't know at the time was that they would be forgiven of their incalculable debt, past, present, and future, and that there would be not one drop left of God's wrath in the cup for them that the wrath of God would be exhausted in full, past, present, and future, and that the breaking of that bread signified all of that. So as we take the bread this morning, I want you to just take a moment as you sit and hold it, because once you receive it, just hold it. We're going to take together as family, since this whole sermon series has been about being family. Hold it and we'll take together as family. I want you to just meditate on for just a moment how great your debt was that it required so much. And how great a gift you've been given in the canceling, and I mean canceling, in full of that debt forever. Let me pray for this.